Um, and I know there was a young lady earlier talking about the ice incident, which we regret, but uh, we, um, we have to consistently get in front of our immigrant community. And there is a large one here in Long Beach and they have to see us face to face. Uh, and they have to be assured that this police department uh, will not involve themselves in civil immigration enforcement. to the very first episode of Back and Forth, a monthly program where we'll be highlighting the work published on Forth.org. We'll talk to Forth writers and photographers, as well as experts, advocates, and Long Beach community members who've been featured in our articles. Now, right about now, you might be asking yourself, what is Forth.org? Well, if you haven't heard of us yet, we're a collective of journalists, essays, poets, and photographers We've come together for the last three years to run a not-for-profit, ad-free, fully independent digital media platform that serves Long Beach and only Long Beach. Today we'll be talking a lot about immigration and the immigrant experience. Earlier this week we published a follow-up to a story we broke in November about how the Long Beach Police Department went back on its sanctuary promise by sharing data from its license plate readers with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. On today's show, we'll talk to a panel of experts and activists who say the city has not done enough to push for accountability and transparency in the three months since the data sharing was revealed. But first, I'll be joined by fourth editor Esther Kang, who last week published a very timely and important essay about the violence being perpetuated on the Asian American communities and her own reflections on racial harassment she's personally experienced. Welcome to the show, Esther. Thank you for being the very first person ever on the show. Uh, how are you doing? I'm honored. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing pretty good. Had some coffee and I'm pretty awake and I'm excited for this conversation. So you published um, this brilliant article last week on Forth uh, titled, We Are Not Your Model Minority or Your Punching Bag, Why Asian Americans Are Hurting and Why You Should Care. Mm. So I want to start by asking if you can give us some context on what, what's been happening uh, to Asian Americans that led you to write this piece. Yeah, so... Um, over the last few weeks, there's been an unexplained, unexplained surge in uh, unprovoked attacks targeting Asian Americans across the country. And the Bay Area in particular has seen dozens of these attacks targeting Asian elders in the weeks leading up to Lunar New Year, um, shoving them to the ground, you know, purse snatching, robbing at gunpoint, stealing their money at ATMs that, you know, they're taking out for the red envelopes, like carjacking, robbing their stores. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's just been uh, a pretty rough time for the Asian communities. Um, and 
in San Francisco, an 84-year-old man, a Thai man, he was, he, he was violently pushed to the ground uh, during his morning walk, and he ended up dying from his injuries. Um, and this has been a huge source of pain for the Asian American communities because our elders are people we deeply honor and protect in our cultures. So there's anger coming to the fore, but also grief and frustration and guilt that we weren't able to protect them. In the last week of January and the first week of February, many of these footages uh, of the attacks were circulating around the Asian American Instagram communities, which is where I've been learning about most of these attacks. There's been a lot of frustration around the fact that these obvious hate crimes uh, were not being covered by media and not talked about or acknowledged outside of these pockets. Um, and now a few weeks later, you know, people are starting to finally talk about it. You know, major corporations like Nike are releasing statements saying like, hashtag stand with Asians. And, you know, it's, people are acknowledging it now. Um, you know, whether it's just by releasing a statement or donating to organizations, uh, news medias are covering it a little more and that's good to see. So I do want to talk about this um, sort of uh, initially it not being uh, attention being placed to it to, to these incidents in the media. Um, but but first I want to I want to ask a little bit about um, some of the some of the rhetoric um, that you blame for this anti Asian uh, sentiment. Um, a lot of it that's been coming that, that, that came from former President Donald Trump. Um, what types of comments from him do you feel help to instigate this kind of violence? And as somebody who's Korean, how has it made you feel to watch it all unfold? I don't know if I place a great deal of blame on Trump. Um, I mean, without a doubt, he did fan the flame of anti-Asian sentiments with his talk of, you know, the China virus or Kung flu or whatever. But I think it was a combination of, combination of that along with the mainstream media's demonization of China and many people's inherent prejudices and apathy toward Asians um, that culminated in this dangerous sentiment. Um, white supremacy and xenophobia has always existed in this country with or without Trump. Um, and to answer your last question, when the pandemic first began and Trump was making his speeches about the China virus, quote unquote, China virus, I wasn't surprised, but also, I didn't feel that afraid for looking the way I do at the time. Um, I wasn't hearing about all the Asian folks across the country being spat on, fielding racist comments, or in some cases being attacked. I felt pretty safe in my Long Beach bubble. And I honestly thought most people just knew better that they wouldn't be so ignorant as to believe Asian people as a whole were responsible for COVID. Um, but these last few weeks, they really woke me up to how a lot of people, not just in this country, but globally, uh, believe that it's okay to scapegoat an entire race of people and harass them as they see fit, like we deserve it. Um, I also feel afraid for my elderly parents and my 80-year-old grandpa who goes on walks every morning and evening. Um, they live in what might be considered a safe neighborhood in Fullerton, but after hearing attacks of elderly folks as close as Hacienda Heights, I know that nothing is off limits. So, so in the piece, you, you um, also talk about how the struggles and pain of Asian Americans 
has often been downplayed, ignored, or you know even erased. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this history and you know and 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 how you've seen this similar pattern play out uh, in regard to this recent spate of violence? Yeah. Um, so I guess I should start with the model minority myth, which is a term coined by an American sociologist in the 60s. And it basically named Japanese Americans as the quote unquote ideal minorities because they were beginning to have success in this country, whatever that means, without government handouts or getting into trouble. And keep in mind, this was only a few decades after World War II, during which more than 100,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned at internment camps and seen as enemies of the state. Um, and I think it's also important to note that the model minority term was coined at the height of the civil rights movement and it was used to gaslight black Americans and it actually pit the two groups against one another. Over time, the model minority myth was spread to describe the entirety of the pan-Asian American experience and that's problematic on multiple fronts. First, it flattens the vast diversity of the Asian American experience um, because Asian Americans come from more than 20 countries across Asia with their own cultures, histories, and struggles. Uh, but under the model minority myth, you know, a few successes within the Asian American community are highlighted while erasing the systemic oppression faced by the majority. An example of this is how Asian Americans have the largest income disparity of any group in this country. Uh, and but because of the stereotypes that all Asians are rich and successful, the one in 10 families who are actually suffering from poverty, they rarely get the resources or the attention that they need. Another point I would like to make about the model minority myth is that it's rendered the Asian American community as a whole invisible. Culturally, many of our families already don't talk about our struggles and for the same reason, older Asians don't like to involve law enforcement or ask for help in any way. So that tendency coupled with this country systemically overlooking Asians over and over again, whether that's in the polls, in workplaces, in the media, in history books, in social justice circles, I feel like that's culminated to this point where people are not seeing the current pain of Asian Americans and the dehumanization many of us are facing. So how did this how did this play out, you know, during the you know first weeks that um, this pattern of violence was was occurring. Um, you say a lot of it was, you were, you were hearing and seeing about it through social media primarily, right? Yeah, so actually uh, local media outlet, outlets, let alone mainstream outlets, they weren't covering these attacks, you know? And actually a Stop AAPI Hate, uh, which is an organization that formed, I think in the beginning of the pandemic uh, to basically record uh, the incidents of, you know, anti-Asian uh, racism, discrimination, just all the different incidents across the country, you know, they were formed in response to the lack of response from just lack of initiative from the government, anyone to track what was happening to Asians uh, nationwide. So, um, you know, mainstream media over the last, I don't know, maybe week or two weeks, finally started covering these stories after a huge campaign by Asian Americans. And this is, you know, just me observing this on Instagram, uh, where I was getting most of this information. Um, you know, people were really just like pushing, you know, tagging these outlets and like every post and every, you know, video and photo, every incident that was being shared, which is not even 
that that's a whole nother point. Um, but I'll make it really quick. Only 10% of, you know, these anti-Asian attacks happening in the Bay Area is actually being shared, according to an ABC reporter named Dion Lim, who's been basically, you know, on the in the front lines covering this on a daily basis. She says, because of lack of, you know, footage or photos or story elements that make it quote unquote newsworthy, like only 10% of these stories are actually being shared with the larger audience, which I think is just appalling. Wow. So so in the piece, in your piece, you also touch on this feeling of alienation um, that you felt growing up in a neighborhood where your family often stood out. You also talk about various racist incidents and microaggressions you faced throughout your life. Was it difficult to relive these situations in order to write about them? And what was your process like? When I decided to write a piece about what was happening, I honestly felt that it was necessary to share my own stories because I don't think a lot of my friends who are not Asian know that these types of racist harassment and microaggressions still happen and are something that their Asian friends face on a regular basis. Um, I don't really talk about it because it doesn't come up. And I guess in some ways it's also alienating. Uh, I came to the States when I was eight and I was always encouraged to blend in and not draw attention to my differences. So talking about, you know, these different microaggressions and harassment um, for being Asian, you know, that would only just make me stand out even more. And I guess there was just some internalized muting myself or censoring myself to not draw attention to the fact that I was different. But writing about these experiences, you know, it definitely forced me to think more about my identity as a 1.5 generation Korean American and Asian American in this current state. And honestly, I don't want to just blend in anymore and pander to white America because everything is not okay. And and another interesting point that you bring up in your essay and something that you break down is this sometimes very complex relationship between Asian American and African American communities and, and how stereotypes that are applied to Asians are you you know are used as a bludgeon against other minorities? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned earlier the model minority myth has been used as a weapon of white supremacy to gaslight Black Americans and the systemic oppression they've always always faced in this country. It's like having two siblings and praising one of them for being so good while shaming the other for not being as good without taking into account that the second sibling has had so many more barriers to success, like redlining, the prison industrial complex, police brutality, and more. I think it's important to note that there are Asian Americans who have bought into this narrative and espouse anti-Black sentiments, like the store owner who uh, shot and killed 15-year-old Latasha in the months leading up to the 1992 LA riots. And in the same way, there are Black Americans who buy into the narrative of Asian Americans being proxies of white supremacy. So it's a very fraught relationship. And there's definitely been a lot of finger pointing between our communities. But we always have to remember who the who the puppet master is, you know, who benefits from our communities working against each other and not together. Have you seen a difference between how the older generation and the younger generation are perceiving this violence against Asians? Um, I'm not sure I've seen a significant difference in perception between the younger and older generations. But it's definitely been interesting to note the 
different re reactions and factions uh, within the Asian American communities in response to these recent attacks. For instance, some folks are pushing retribution by way of increased law enforcement, while others are pushing for restorative justice and addressing the systemic issues that have caused these attacks. And you know, there are some who get on the ground and they've formed patrol coalitions to protect elderly Asians in, you know, Chinatown, Oakland or LA uh, by physically being there and being a physical barrier. And some people have not acknowledged it <laughs> at all. So yeah, it's a time of crisis and it's just been very interesting to see where people stand and how they react. And what do you hope people reading this piece uh, will get out of it, both people who are Asian and, and people who are not Asian? I think, first of all, I want people to understand that this is just one story. I don't speak for the entire Asian American population. And I feel like a lot of times with, you know, minority stories, people tend to generalize it to fit, you know, the in, the entire, it, it's like coined as the Asian American experience, right? Um, without realizing that it's just one story. So that's the first thing that I would want people to remember when reading it. And I hope that after reading it, people become more honest and aware of Asian history in this country, a lot of pain, uh, a lot of stuff that doesn't get talked about often, like the internment camps and stuff that I didn't mention in the story, like the Chinese Exclusion Act um, and a lot of historical uh, pain associated with Asian Americans that are just not acknowledged. And for Asian folks reading the story, I hope that they recognize that the state and law enforcement are not on our side. They don't work for us. Um, we work for us, whether that's by amplifying our stories as well as each other's and raising awareness, building community, organizing, et cetera. Well, thank you, Esther you know, for, for taking the time to talk about this difficult subject and um, for dropping by virtually. Um, Thanks for having me. Of course, this is a very poignant and necessary article. Um, you can read Esther's piece, We Are Not Your Model Minority or Your Punching Bag, Why Asian Americans Are Hurting and Why You Should Care. You can read it at forth.org. That's F-O-R-T-H-E dot org. Thanks for having me, Kevin. And I want to give a quick shout out to you and the rest of the fourth team for just holding space for this and giving me, you know, honest feedback and, you know, encouraging me to write this piece. So thank you. You're listening to KLBP 99.1 Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, we'll be joined by various activists and experts who will help us understand the significance of LBPD sharing data with ICE. Stay tuned.
I'm Kevin Flores, editor at Forth.org, and you're listening to Back and Forth on KLBP 99.1 FM. Back in November, we first reported that the Long Beach Police Department had shared data gathered by its automatic license plate readers with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement during an eight-month period in 2020. This data sharing went against promises the city had made to severely limit its cooperation with federal immigration officials. ICE was able to access the data through an information sharing network run by Vigilant Solutions, the same vendor that sold the license plate readers to the city. This massive network aggregates license plate data from hundreds of entities from across the country and lets law enforcement agencies track vehicles across jurisdictions. Now, the police department chalked it up to a contract employee inadvertently granting ICE access to the data. Soon after we published our initial report, the LBPD said they revoked ICE's access and put in place internal measures to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. Still, many questions remain, including whether ICE still is able to access LBPD's license plate data using a workaround and what policies the city should consider to bring more transparency to this issue. To help chew through some of this is Greg Buell, an attorney and researcher who started CheckLBPD.org, a local police transparency website. In the last year, he has been looking into the LBPD's use of surveillance equipment and was the one who obtained the documents showing the department was sharing license plate data with ICE. Also joining me is Jamliet Ochoa, a community organizer for the Long Beach Immigrant Rights Coalition, and Brian Hoffer, executive director of Secure Justice, a Bay Area nonprofit that's had some recent success advocating for more transparency around local surveillance programs. He's also the chair of Oakland's Privacy Advisory Commission. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you. So I wanna begin with you, Greg. What led you to file these public records requests that gave us the contours of LBPD's automatic license plate reader program? Uh, I initially filed the PRA requests following some incidents we had over the summer. Um, there were protests in Long Beach after the murder of George Floyd and two innocent protesters somehow got their uh, license plates flagged by the Long Beach police as wanted in connection with felony robberies which led to those two women being pulled over by police in other jurisdictions, uh, Hesperia and Pasadena. And uh, they were treated like you would treat armed robbery suspects. They were pulled out of their cars. They were detained at gunpoint, handcuffed. And then they were just let go with their cars impounded and told to contact the Long Beach Police Department to figure it out. Um, they eventually um, sort of got interrogated by the Long Beach Police with them using the fact they had their cars as leverage to uh, interrogate these women and then eventually determined they were innocent and um, paid their impound fees, but never really apologized. And trying to figure out how all that happened and how the ALPR systems work together, I filed some PRA requests and I found out it looks like they were flagged in a California Department of Justice um, felony hot list by the Long Beach police. And that's how the other jurisdictions uh, got on those women's plates. and. Uh, one of the other documents I, I got from that request just happened to show the ICE data sharing. So what did all of these documents reveal about the scale and scope of the police's 
um, automatic license plate reader program? Uh, the LPPD has a surprisingly expansive program. Um, they have a few stationary units and they have almost 60 mobile units. Or they've bought 60 over the years and about two dozen of those are newer units that are for sure still in service. Uh, with what they have, they're able to scan just, sh just shy of 25 million plates per year. And that's 67 scans per 67,000 scans per day or a scan every 1.3 seconds. And literally over 99.9% .9 of that data belongs to law-abiding. Law Only 0.07% of scans belong to people that even have a parking ticket overdue. It's a massive surveillance database. And they save that data, including geo geolocation data of where the scan was made for over two years. That's the maximum limit set by Senate Bill 34. And they share that data with hundreds of agencies. It's currently 634 agencies, but it's been over a thousand in the past. And given Long Beach's population, that's over a hundred data points for each person in the city being shared widely across the country. Brian, so, so based off of uh, what Greg's saying here that these cameras can very rapidly and indiscriminately um, uh, collect uh, license plate numbers as well as geolocation data and time, what, what can police do with this? Well, a lot of the new generation of these scanners and um, I just want to, before I forget, correct something Greg just said. SB 34 does not set a maximum retention limit, which has been a big concern, in addition to the concern that most of California just ignores that law completely. Uh, there is a, a bill uh, to amend SB 34 that's just been introduced by State Senator Weiner that would prohibit the retention of any scans not already on a hot list for any lengthier time than 24 hours. So it'd actually be a really big deal uh, to address those concerns about mass surveillance that Greg just raised. Uh, you know, police officers tell us that these just pick up license plate scans, just the digits, and that's just demonstra uh, demonstrably untrue. Uh, that's mostly what they pick up, but they also pick up road signs, house residential numbers. Uh, they've captured photos of people that just happen to be, you know, near the digits that the machine is looking for. Uh, most modern uh, software now has full object detection. So let's say you see a Toyota Corolla, but you didn't get the license plate. They could search for make, model, color. Uh, they even now can identify bumper stickers. Uh, the newest vendors, I still think it's a bit of, of hype at this point, but they're saying that they could tell you the number of occupants. Uh, vendors like Vigilant Solutions, which uh, provides their database uh, to ICE. Uh, they're now offering facial recognition and uh, most vendors also have predictive analytics. We're creatures of habit. Uh, as Greg was mentioning the geospatial data points, it only takes four, time and location, it only takes four of those data points to identify over 95% of people uh, because we drive to work the same way or to church the same way to the same gym. So we are, it's, it's very invasive from a privacy threat perspective, license plate readers are, are really high up on the um, 
matrix. And what you see with police, uh, you know, 10 years ago, they told us this equipment was just to recover stolen vehicles, you know, to kind of overcome that hiding in plain sight phenomenon. But today it's exploded. It's used everywhere for administrative, civil, criminal, investigative matters, uh, search and rescue. And there just really aren't any sufficient guidelines. Basically, the police are using it however they want to, and there's no real transparency and accountability into it. And you touched on something there um, in saying that by reconstructing people's travel patterns, you can you can identify them uh, most of the time, and and that kind of goes against something that police that the police say is that they're just collecting license plate data that that data by itself cannot identify somebody. So and you're saying it's not that simple. Yeah, that's you know that's like one of those like true but completely meaningless statements. Uh, it is true that a couple of digits by itself does not say, hey, that's Brian Hofer. But the reason why it's meaningless is those very same officers have direct access to the California DMV database, which has addresses and phones and, and uh, you know, uh, face uh, scans. Uh, they have access to the FBI's NCIC database and a whole host of dozens of other databases. So they're one click away from identifying people. And I would even argue, uh, you know, what the data scientists are now telling us is that actually just the geospatial data point is enough. If you have four, uh, again, due to our unique, you know, kind of pattern driven lifestyles that we uh, just do as, as humans, we're just creatures of habit. Those four data points are themselves enough to identify us. That's how unique they are, and that's how invasive this tool is. So, so seeing how 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 invasive this data um, is, I guess the million dollar question here is: Can residents in cities that use these devices be sure that their data is being used properly and, and not ending up in the wrong place? I don't promise to anybody today, especially as I've started doing a more sanctuary immigrants' rights work. I don't promise anybody that their data is safe. Uh, between the public and private sharing, uh, it is impossible to control all the third parties. You would have to have complete control upstream and downstream of the data sharing, and that's just not happening. I'm aware of eight police chiefs in sanctuary jurisdictions that have had to publicly apologize because they were all using vigilant solutions, which commingles all the data and sends it to ICE and they didn't opt out. They didn't build in any, any firewalls. And so all that data collected is at risk. Uh, I have hundreds of emails of local police departments running queries for ICE. Um, so we never promise people that their data is safe. You know, uh, With good policies, you can minimize that risk, but if the data is being collected, it's at risk. Jamlet, uh, why, why should people care that the Long Beach Police Department was found to be sharing data with ICE. Well, I think um, as you know, I, I, I am a community organizer with the Long Beach Migrant Rights Coalition. We have been saying, right, that um, there's no way that the police does not collaborate with ICE. Um, we are aware that increased surveillance leads to more criminalization. And in this case, double punishment, when we're talking about undocumented communities. Um, if an undocumented folks have had prior interactions with the criminal justice system, they're much more likely to be picked up by ICE, and that's just a fact. Um, everyone, whether you're an immigrant or not, should care because these agencies are claiming to protect our communities. But, of course, their actions don't match. 
when they collaborate with ICE by simply just sharing information as, you know, in, that's a very watered down version of what's actually happening. Um, this is doing the exact opposite of protecting. Um, this breaks the entire families and communities apart. And thankfully in this case, you know, we're seeing that there are organizations that are talking about it and doing the work, but still the city is doing the opposite um, and really just causing harm by using the, the this data management and using these um, technology to really put uh, information out there to harm communities. And so we reached out to all nine council members, as well as the mayor for comment on our latest story on this issue. And we've got We've got no, gotten no response, and since November, when this when we first broke this story, no elected officials of the city have addressed this issue. So, what does that say to you? Well, you know, I have so many questions too. Um, like, why haven't they addressed it? Why is it not relevant enough? Why is nothing being done about it? And why is an LBPD being being held accountable? Um, we have all those questions, and we want answers from them too community deserves transparency and the city and the police department with regarding all of this. And again, the police department needs to be held accountable. Um, this is why everybody needs to care. This impacts us all. Everybody should be demanding accountability from these agencies. Our community's lives are literally depending on this. Yeah, and, and during the period that LBPD was sharing this data with ICE, a Long Beach father was taken into custody. This was last March. Um, as he was walking to his car. Um, also around this time, uh, activists were ringing the alarm bells about ICE increasingly targeting Cambodians for deportation. Um, John Lee, we did, we did hear the police chief, uh, Robert Luna, admit that the data was being shared with ICE. And he said that the department regrets it during a city council study session last month. Uh, let's, let's listen to that clip. Um, and I know there was a young lady earlier talking about the ICE incident, which we regret, but uh, we, um, we have to consistently get in front of our immigrant community, and there is a large one here in Long Beach, and they have to see us face to face. Uh, and they have to be assured that this police department uh, will not involve themselves in civil immigration enforcement. Uh, we respect hardworking people, uh, people that want to raise their families and do well in our community. Uh, and uh, that's who we are. Jamilet, do you think the chief saying uh, his department regrets sharing the data with ICE was enough for the community to feel reassured that the department is complying with the city's commitment to protect immigrants from deportation? My first question is who heard that, right? Like who can hear his regrets? The second is, what are the next actions that he's going to take to fix this after he said his regrets? And where are the tangible results of this heartfelt regret? And I'm putting quotations around that um, because there's so much work that needs to be done, not to mention the fact that they only acknowledged the regret after my public comment. And in that meeting, we heard a lot of, you know, patting on the back going on, you know, um, for, for the work that LBPD is doing without acknowledging this crucial detail. The LBPD department has been promising to protect BIPOC communities, but we can see that their actions say otherwise. They're taking an advantage of the fact that these city council meetings are almost impossible for people to access. Um, if folks don't speak English, if they aren't familiar with the technology, and if they don't have time because they're working so hard to pay the high rent here in Long Beach 
they're not able to listen to what's happening in these meetings. They're not even able to hear like the decisions that are being made. Um, as of right now, we still see the uh, that the uh, to navigate the um, to make a public comment or to just be part of these meetings for city council is still very difficult, right? Um, so the LBPD department has made an attack on communities they claim to protect, and this is something that needs to be brought up openly with the plan of action to fix it, not just regret. Um, their actions coincide with their origins, which is to protect and serve the wealthy. And one thing to point out is that we're not asking for the impossible. We're simply asking for accountability, transparency, and justice. So, so Greg, the police department said back in November, um, when this was first revealed, this, this data sharing with ICE um, was first revealed that they revoked ICE's access to the data. Uh, now, how sure can we be that ICE is no longer getting the data? We can't really. Given uh, how widespread our data is shared and how creative ICE is in accessing data, there's still many backdoors that ICE can still get Long Beach data through. As Brian said, many local police departments share data with ICE and we share data with those local police so they can get it that way. We also still share with lots of federal agencies and federal fusion centers that ICE agents can simply ask to run searches. So if an ICE agent wants a search done, all they have to do is ask Custom and Border Patrol National Targeting Center to run a search because they still have access to Long Beach's data. We also share with dozens of departments that are 287G um, participants with ICE. That means their, their agents are, their local police are basically deputized ICE agents. And those departments are obviously eager to cooperate with ICE and dozens of those still have Long Beach's data. And Long Beach shares all this data without any memoranda of understanding that would ensure that the data is used in ways that comply with Long Beach's values. Uh, we still share without any MOUs, despite guidance from the California Department of Justice in 2008, calling for MOUs that uh, call for respecting the Values Act take, that are made for any data sharing. Uh, Chief Luna would have received this guidance in 2018, saying that if you're gonna share data with someone that might then share it with ICE, you need an MOU to ensure that they can't share that data with ICE. And we still don't take even that simple step when we're sharing with ICE-related agencies. It's, um, we're, we're not even doing the bare minimum to make sure our data is safe. And Long Beach should be really aware of ICE, how creative ICE could be because in 2016, we were one of ICE's biggest backdoors to other departments' ALPR data. We went so far, we created three accounts for ICE and Customs and Border Patrol agents on the Long Beach's portal to Vigilant Solutions so ICE agents could run searches as if they were Long Beach Police Department officers. And that gave them access not just to Long Beach's data, but data shared with hundreds of other departments with Long Beach. So we, Long Beach knows exactly how it works and they're still not taking the minimum steps to secure our data. So Brian, we heard from John Lett uh, about the lack of transparency uh, around the decisions to purchase uh, you know, this equipment and um, any kind of accountability measures. And, and now we're hearing here from Greg that we can't even be sure that ICE's access to that has been completely revoked. So um, I also want to mention that the day that we published the initial story on the license plate readers, the Long Beach City Council approved the purchase of nearly $400,000 worth of automatic license plate readers for its parking enforcement division. Um, and this item was on the consent calendar 
and it passed without any public discussion. And so, Brian, I take it that this would not have happened in Oakland. No. And, you know, that's just, you know, this is giving me PTSD from when I first became an activist. Every item I ever worked on in the early days, like 2014, 15, was on the consent calendar. We had a $12 million mass surveillance project in Oakland called the Domain Awareness Center that was on the consent calendar. $12 million for Oakland is a lot of money. Uh, and there was no public discussion, no use policy. And we just keep seeing this over and over that our elected leaders just aren't paying attention and this stuff is just sliding right under the radar. Uh, here in the Bay Area, we have seven uh, surveillance technology ordinances in place. I've been consulting with the city of San Diego. They're going to do an Oakland-inspired uh, privacy commission and surveillance ordinance combination. Uh, you know, that, that might be something Long Beach would want to consider, but essentially everything is forced out into the open. No more consent uh, items, no more non-disclosure agreements, no more secret purchases, even, you know, because it's, it's not set by the dollar amount, like this technology is getting cheaper and cheaper. And so sometimes it doesn't require legislative approval, it could fit under the city manager spending authority. So we just took all that away forced every item out there's public scrutiny there's an impact analysis required up front before we even you know green light this uh, so we can discuss the potential benefits and negatives we have a proposed use policy to review up front and then if we do actually green light the item every single year uh, you're essentially getting approved for one year uh, you have to come back with an annual report and demonstrate how you've used it. You know, was there any efficacy? Is it meeting its goals? And of course, someone like me, you know, I'm always looking at like third party data access, you know, where, who's got our data, who owns it, who are we sharing it with? And under our model, all those categories uh, are addressed um, so that we don't have these oversights that pop up. You know, I don't think necessarily every single data breach is, is intentional. Obviously, when Long Beach is setting up accounts for ICE, that's clearly intentional. And that's a cultural change that, you know, a policy by itself is not going to fix. Um, but for the other folks, there's a lot of you know, police officers and so on that just don't understand this technology at all. They don't understand how to put firewalls in place. And, and so that's been what the Privacy Commission has hoped to is, is educate them and start mitigating these harms. And that's all the time we have um, today, folks. Uh, I want to thank my guests, uh, Greg Buell of CheckLVPD.org, Jamlet Ochoa of the Long Beach Immigrant Rights Coalition, and Brian Hofer of Secure Justice. You can read our latest story on the police's use of automatic license plate readers at forth.org. That's F-O-R-T-H-E dot org. all the time we have for today folks thank you for tuning in to back and forth on klbp 99.1 fm we'll be back again next month with a whole new round of fourth's best articles to talk about until then i'm kevin flores editor at fourth.org take care
Sickness. 